To a certain extent, I think it's useful in our movements, but I'm a little bit worried that we might overinvest in that sense of urgency and duality. And I wonder what's possible in like non-dual, uh, like patient, committed, steady, like irrepressible. Like what's the difference between pressure politics and irrepressible politics that I are just that. like, you know, the patience of the ocean that just like erodes the cliffside. Citizen Podcast. Welcome back to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie, and thanks for tuning in. Perhaps the most frequent question I get asked by folks is how do I show up in this moment? If that's you, this podcast is for you. And to help us answer that question is the amazing Katie Lonk of Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Katie is one of the most throw-down, committed activists I know. But what makes her unique is that she's as committed to who she is being as she is to what she is doing. Katie helped create Build Block B, which is a holistic framework for how we respond that acknowledges and celebrates all of our unique roles, strategies, and medicine as necessary and essential for how we bring forth collective liberation. Block is how we confront systemic harm. Build is how we create connection and collaborative tools. And B is how we cultivate a capacity and resilience to show up for what's needed. In the conversation, you'll hear me talk about how I've always been attracted to block in my activism, through protest and civil disobedience, through advocacy and speaking truth to power, through doing the work of dismantling whatever's in the way of justice. My way has been loud. It's been aggressive at times. It's been confrontational and engaged. And what I learned through our conversation is that while that is needed at times, it's not the whole story. Katie invites us to consider the quieter instruments of our activism and how powerful stillness, silence, and receptivity is in allowing us to be more bold and creative in how we respond. She imagines a different kind of politics, one that is irrepressible rather than forceful. She describes it as steady and sustained politics that has the patience of the ocean that erodes the cliffside. While at times we chant, no justice, no peace, in outrage at a system that refuses to listen, Katie asks us not to underestimate peace and to lean into the listening and stillness that it brings so that we can be more effective in how we block and build together. This conversation gave me hope, not just for what's possible, but for how it can feel and who we can be together. Check it out. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Carrie. Thank you for being here and being in conversation with us. Thanks for coming. So I, um, gosh, I admire your work so much. And, um, and, and what of, one of the things I've really appreciated about you as I've witnessed you over the years is how um, organically you embody um, the way in which you, you throw down so fiercely mm-hmm. around justice and around activism and are invested so fiercely in Buddhist practice mm-hmm. and in the beingness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love that just because I know not a lot of, of people understand that relationship and that intersection. Um, mm-hmm. And not only do you mm-hmm. understand it, but like you really stand at that intersection. Have you always understood the interplay, <laughs> right, between between justice and, and meditation? Or did that evolve gradually for you? Hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I did not always understand that interplay. Uh, and I, I grew up, uh, I think ferocity was my first language, you know, like I grew up with a feminist mom who taught me a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. That's <laughs> <And> awesome. <laughs> was constantly fighting for reproductive justice and fighting against a lot of religious fundamentalists. Um, and I grew up with 
uh, father who was also fighting for justice in his own way. Well, he was a, a black judge at a time when that was still relatively rare. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like justice was really kind of in my blood, in my family. And, you know, I, I had, I would almost channel like this rage about discrimination, injustice, like homophobia in my school, sexism in my school. And I, I f- started fighting that from a pretty young age. Um, and it felt good. You know, it felt aligned with long and deep traditions of, of fighting against oppression, of fighting for freedom, equality, liberation. Um, and at the same time, I was, I was what I now call like an arrogant atheist. I was just like, yeah, like this is all that needs to happen is we got to fight for justice and like treat each other well and be kind. And you know, religion is like a thing that people kind of add on top if they need something else to believe in. You know, I, I saw it as kind of a, a, a crutch or like a, um, yeah, just an invention. And it wasn't until I uh, finished college and stumbled upon some meditation teachings and eventually went to a meditation center that I like first had that experience of the mashup of my like righteous rage with the wisdom that these that these teachings were offering. So it was it's actually this really petty personal experience where I lived within walking distance of the meditation center I was going to. And uh, one morning I would go to the six six forty five a.m. sits and I one morning I got an email from a lover from someone I was dating that described some criticisms about me. And I was really annoyed and and upset. And further annoyed because I was like, oh, now this email is going to ruin my meditation in the morning. I'm going to be just pissed the whole time. <laughs> Won't be able to focus on my breath. And I like stomped over to the meditation center, really pissed, really mad, and had a very distracted sit. Stomped on my way back home, still mad. But then suddenly, like, I could hear these other feelings that were simultaneously happening. And it's what I've come to kind of think of as the quieter instruments. Mm -hmm. Like when you're listening to a song and the melody is maybe in the foreground or the singer, but then you can, you can train yourself to listen to the bass or the drums or like the quieter things in the background. You can hear more. Right. And so, although the anger was still the primary sound, the loudest sound, I could suddenly hear like, Oh, I actually feel really grateful that this person would, you know, take the time to share this with me. And I'm kind of curious, you know, oh, is this, does this match what other people have shared about me? And, and there's this like still quiet, but like really expansive mm-hmm. kind of feeling. And that's when I knew like, oh, wow, this is real. Like this is for real. These wisdom practices are alerting me to parts of life and reality that I just had been drowned out by my own like righteousness and anger. Did those feelings feel in conflict to you? I, at that moment, I saw how they could coexist, yeah. right? And then, and then that I think guided my activism thereafter because I knew or I felt that our activism never has to be one note. It can always be so complex, so rich with this orchestra of feelings. And that's the type of activism that I feel like inspired by, you know, it brings me alive. And and I think the type that you do and the type that we're trying to promote in the world, it's like this, um, yeah, it just, it feels really holistic, like really multidimensional. And and yet one note is what we're taught, right? Yeah. Um, because I'm just thinking about like how much activism exists without contemplative practice, without inquiry um, and, and interrogation and curiosity is like what I heard you describing. Yeah. And also so much contemplative practice exists without mm-hmm. activism, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. yoga and right, like we see so much of that and how mm-hmm. how we're, we're taught binary by culture. Right. And that it's either one or the other because to hold those things together is messy. Right. And often contradictory. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I find it to be more challenging. I mean, more more rewarding for sure and more challenging. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, I was I was really uh, also irritated and frustrated at some of my first my initial experiences with um, even engaged Buddhism. Right, like I would see advertised these engaged Buddhist retreats that were like thousands of dollars, and I was like, "Who <laughs> can afford to do this?" Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Like, and and that would really have a heavy emphasis on this acceptance and like. You know, don't resist reality. Just, just inquire. Just mm. inquire. Like, just be curious. And I was like, this feels really unsafe to me, and this feels really and untrue. Yeah, yeah, and just and also kind of unkind, or I don't know, um, and certainly uninclusive, right? Right. right. I mean, the amount of like mid, like five thousand dollar retreats to find yourself and do good in the world, yeah. and how we're selling that, right? We're yeah. often framing. Um, come to this retreat and be the change maker you need to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't ever, inc- it doesn't include a consideration for people who can't afford that. Right, right. Um, or a consider, I got, you know, and certainly not a consideration for like structural racism and right, right. <laughs> systemic, you know, oppression. Um, and, and then doesn't also include like a systemic analysis of like why, we, how we're even here, mm-hmm. like why we even need change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like so, and it's funny because it's, it's harmful and it's just so limiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but luckily, I think it's it's evolving. Yeah. You know, it's it's not we're not doomed <laughs> to stay there forever. <laughs> Wait, this is the end of the podcast. Good luck, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's um, it's actually like pretty heartwarming, I think, to see um, how how influences like pleasure activism from Adrian yes. Brown and like um Radical Dharma. Radical Dharma. Yeah, just the the openness increasingly to understanding that, yeah, one-dimensional pressure politics can be more and uh, commodified spirituality can be more. Yeah, yeah. And it's fine if we're attracted to those initially, you know, like I, that's that's kind of what was it might be like a point of entry exactly yeah but then at some point some of us find ourselves like longing to really combine them or like wrestle with these paradoxes of like well dharma buddha dharma the wisdom of the buddha is teaching me like suffering comes when i resist reality but then my political community is teaching me to resist what's going on and that that's how we're going to survive or how we're going to win so what do i do with that and, and therein lies the practice. Right. I was in conversation with someone recently, um, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, you might know her, and, and we were talking about enoughness and how, you know, society, especially like the, the, the wellness industrial complex, right, is trying to sell us you're not mm. enough, so buy all these things. And so there's like a reclaiming our, of I'm enough, right? But even that's limiting, right? Because, because I think we can be, be um, committed to radical self-acceptance around I am enough and I am whole already mm-hmm. and also be pushing ourselves around where can I be better, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. is it not enough, in fact, mm-hmm. right? And I, and I just think that too is like one of those like mind, mm-hmm. mind-blown <laughs> yeah. paradoxical practices where like it can be both of those things at the same time. Right, right. And this is where like the spiritual practice I think really comes in for me. Like how do I hold seemingly opposites yeah. simultaneously that was that was suzuki roshi right he said to his students you're perfect just as you are and you could use a little improvement that's right i love that <laughs> yeah and and i think there's this other part also it's not perfect as i am and need to improve it's also what is i what is this i that i'm referring to that is either enough just as it is right. or needs some improvement like that place of inquiry also is so mind blowing and so has been so fruitful for me of like, oh, wow, there's shit. There's like a whole other dimension of questioning the separate self, questioning. That's right, the small self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the analysis that I've like learned around that is how, um, how, that, how that has really come from the culture of individualism, right? And, and how that too, right, is, um, has been weaponized. By culture and by systems so that we we believe we're separate and therefore we won't organize or therefore mm. we won't right mm. um and and how that's one of those other things that we need to unlearn mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's beautiful um Thich Nhat Hanh is like a huge inspiration for 
Buddhist Peace Fellowship and has been since the 70s. Uh, for listeners, I don't know if you're familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh, but uh, he's a Vietnamese Zen master, was nominated by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, they were contemporaries. And he, um, he really live and continues to live his life embodying these paradoxes. He will say things like, never choose sides and always resist injustice, you know? And it's like, how could we possibly do that? And he was exiled from Vietnam for refusing to take sides in the American war or the Vietnam war. Um, and, and I think about like, when we talk about individualism, I mean, the U.S. context is so hyper-individualistic, but that's not true in all places where Buddhism exists and has existed, right? So how right. can we learn from what our, in some ways, like our spiritual elder societies, you know, how they are living and self-governing and, and working together around the pain of the separate self? Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh is definitely a huge inspiration for me for that. Kind of surprisingly so, because I used to a little bit write him off. This is like a terrible admission to make publicly. <laughs> Confessions. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, he he wasn't honestly like I, I wanted more confrontation than what he seemed to be proposing. And this was maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago. And I think I've I've since come back to him and I have like, a whole new level of appreciation and respect for his teaching and his practice. Um, but also like I'm thinking about as far as, as the medicine against hyper-individualism, I'm thinking about um, Thailand and parts of Cambodia, Southeast Asia. Um, quick shout out. So uh, Ajahn Chah in the Thai forest tradition is kind of like one of the big forerunners of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center where I first started learning and studying Buddha Dharma. So I I just feel like it's kind of important to name some of the yes. people that have held the lineages. And um, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a Buddhist teacher, but I'm I'm just a student and a learner and a lover of seeking. And so Ajahn Chah in the Thai forest tradition and Saigachi Ubakin in the Burmese tradition. Um, I also studied in the Goenkaji centers that are kind of like free by donation only uh, centers all around the world that were uh, a real refreshing counterpoint, actually, for me. They're not perfect by any means, but they're they're entirely donation-based. And because their teachings are pre-recorded, a lot of the, the evening discourses are pre-recorded, they can be translated into mm. like, every language. And so it was some of the most multilingual, multi-ethnic, accessible, accessible yeah. dharma that I've ever attended. So shout out to that. Yes. <laughs> Vipassana uh, centers. Um, yeah. And then and then recently I've been uh, inquiring and studying in a Rinzai Zen tradition that comes through uh, Stanley Tanuya Roshi um, and Omori Sogen and is now being carried on uh, in the U.S. So anyway, thank you for Good letting context. me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just give gratitude to these lineages because, um, I, you know, it, it is also such a, a U.S. tendency to want to glorify the new or kind of reinvent and not actually give honor and, and homage to the lineages. And like, that's also a way that we can resist the hyper-individualism, totally. right? Is by understanding like, we're just parts of these deep, deep, you know, lineages across time. Well, and, and it also, I think, helps us take responsibility for the taking, mm -hmm. right? Like we, we have a culture of taking right. and appropriating what's not ours, especially mm -hmm. when we don't acknowledge and give reverence to where they came from. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So happy to be trying to unlearn some of that. Thank and again, that. imperfect and, yeah. um, and but we're, we're moving, we're moving, changing. Yeah, we're evolving, we're in transition. <laughs> Yeah. So. And you were saying, um, um, and I forget the quote that you said around, um, I won't take sides, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but, um, but I'll resist injustice, but I'll resist injustice. And it just like makes me think about what's happening in our country right now mm -hmm. and the divisiveness. Um, and I, I hear often a lot, um, a lot of the response to that is like, 
is common ground. Like, can we all just get along and, you know, and let's not take, right? (laughs) And this idea that we can be neutral, Uh right? Like this illusion that neutrality is possible um, and how harmful that is in the way in which it erases people's experiences Mm -hmm. and it, and it upholds injustice. And so what, what do you, what is the teaching for us there around how we acknowledge non-neutral and, and navigate, you know, like not perpetuating divisiveness right. and separation, but also resisting right. um, when things are wrong right. and not okay. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, to me, what's coming up is um, commitment and patience together. Like, what happens if I refuse to accept a false or hateful story about me? But I also don't have to go in and smash it mm-hmm. right this moment. The hammer. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's definitely my my original instinct. Your ferocity. <laughs> yeah. It. Like, that's what... I so related to you in that moment. I was like, yeah, ferociousness. <laughs> yeah. And it's understandable why. Because so much human cruelty and oppressive systems and colonization and, you know, all this junk has been, like, heaped onto people and land and non-human beings and so yeah there's this like instinct to just shake it off as quickly as possible and kind of neutralize the threat and I've been thinking a lot about that in in context of like Christian hegemony also in this country and like the good versus evil and like a judgmental God um, that is that's like, oh, there's something about the story of like, you can't be neutral. You have to choose sides because God's going to judge you and based on which side you choose. And to a certain extent, I think it's useful in our movements, but I'm a little bit worried that we might um, overinvest in that sense of urgency and duality and uh, and I wonder what's possible in like non-dual, uh, like patient, committed, steady, like irrepressible. Like what's the difference between pressure politics and irrepressible politics that I are just that. like, you know, the patience of the ocean that just like erodes the cliffside. And like the sustained push. Yeah. That's like, that's not like, it's not even palpable, but it's like. Right. It's like nonstop pressure. Right, right. As an analogy, right, for how we mm-hmm. keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think if we're taught that the only way we can demonstrate our commitment is by, like, s- like smashing the opposition in the moment, then do we lose all kinds of other creative resistance opportunities and tactics? Um, mm-hmm. I'll give an example. So... Recently, um, it's like, yeah, it's an example of where like a, an imbalance towards the like polarization can can uh, cause us to forfeit things that are important to us. Mm-hmm. So like recently I was um, attending an action by a group of young environmentalists that were pressuring, pressuring the um, DNC, the Democratic National Convention, to try to get them to adopt a climate debate for the presidential candidates. And um, these young people were like really hyped, you know, met at a nearby fast food place to like review the roles and who's gonna, you know, if certain things don't get voted on correctly, we're gonna start singing and shouting and moving in this way. And then we go over to uh, to the hotel convention center, it's this big hall and there are many rows of chairs set up for the audience, and there's there's a kind of view of the uh, 
DNC representatives. And people take their seats and more and more people keep streaming in later. So there are more people than there are chairs, right? And I can feel it's like this palpable laser focus from the environmentalists, these young environmentalists, like at the front of the room, at the target, at the people that they're trying to push and move with the pressure politics. And this laser focus is uh, ignoring the fact that there are like elders now in the room mm. who like don't have a chair to sit in. Whoa. You know what I mean? And it's like the environmental movement to me is about like loving and honoring the sacredness of all life and about like recovering and reclaiming a lot of these, uh, you know, yeah, just the the fecundity uh, and sacredness of Earth that is, you know, flattened and killed off by ecocidal white supremacist, settler colonialist, say it, <laughs> heteropatriarchy, right? <laughs> and but and yet, like we're not we're not we're not aware of what's happening. And so finally, I you know I just made an announcement to the room, like, hey y'all, like some people aren't don't have enough chairs to sit in so those of us who can stand can we get up and make room for people who might need to sit which could be based on age but could be based on all kinds of like invisible disabilities whatever whatever yeah, like that's right. and so so it was good you know we then we moved and and the group kind of found its equilibrium again but um but i really i'm really excited to see more and more hopefully in our movements yeah. like both being able to take on the compassionate confrontation of like the challenge of the so-called opposition, but also like this expanded awareness of, you know, who are we, where are we, how do we conduct yes. ourselves? And um, to me, that's where like mindful awareness practice and training absolutely is like indispensable to the, to the uh, political work. Especially when we're trying to do a lot of things at once, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's like when the cost is relationship and human dignity, it's too high. Yeah. It's just too high, right? And, yeah. and we forget who we are. Yeah. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon for making it possible for us to do this work. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can join us at patreon.com slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L. So I want to talk more about sort of this like nuanced holistic approach to change making that you keep talking about. Mm. And you have this framework called Build Block B, mm. which you define as a framework describing the essential qualities for true social and spiritual transformation. And I believe it's based on the three uh, uh, dimensions that come out of Joanna Macy's work, right, around the great turning. Well, they're very similar. And Joanna and I actually, and the BPF staff, we all sat down and had a conversation recently and explored where there might be similarities and differences. Oh, but nice. Yeah, she's amazing. Joanna Macy, the great turning, so good. Well, and it's a demonstration <laughs> of how, like, um, healthy frameworks, mm -hmm. right, are are alike, right? Yeah. Like, that, the, like, and human frameworks, right, mm -hmm. like, emerge from different places and have a lot in common. Right. 
Right. And also a lot that's different based on who's emerging, who's originating them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and Block Build B is, is, I think of it almost as this. Is it Block Build B and I'm calling it Build Block It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. It can, yeah. <laughs> I, I like is there to a do, sequence? <laughs> it's a good question. I, I like to do Block Build B. It might be like a bias because I start out with Block. No. You know? well, I resonate with Block too. We talked about this. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, you know. Let's not downplay the block here. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think of it almost as this like methodological poem. You know, it just kind of came to me one day in, in the BPF office here where we are. And I was like, okay, block, build, B. Yeah. Because things like um, Yes Magazine or these like great, you know, kind of counterbalances to all the negative are really awesome, I think, for helping balance out the block and the build like the no mm-hmm. and the yes. But I was like, we are at a the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, this like spiritual political constellation of people and being is like, should be in there. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. block, build, be. Okay, yeah. How can we block oppression and harm, structural harm, build inspiring solutions for the things we want to see in the world and be like in alignment with our true our highest truths, you know, and in alignment with that part of ourselves that that wants to notice like who else is in the room and um, and hear the quieter instruments. Yeah, and and all of these things can can coexist at the same time. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes certain part certain components lead, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? right, based on what the need is and what the circuit. So it's nuanced and it's responsive. Right, right. But it allows different people to like. Um, to contribute also, right, in unique, authentic ways, mm-hmm. what feels true to them, right? So yeah. it makes room for everybody's gifts. Yeah, like often when, when you know, we speak this poem aloud, the Block Build Bee poem, I really see people just relax, almost like full body sigh, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because either it's like, oh, things other than blocking can be important mm. and and that's great or oh wow like maybe I don't have to block all the time mm-hmm. maybe I can take a break because I know my comrades and cousins over there are, you know holding that part down and maybe actually what I'm doing over mm-hmm. here in being which sort of feels like treason or like you know abdication of my responsibility I can find ways to reintegrate it and reharmonize it with the blocking and the building that are going on. That feels so important, especially I feel like in movement culture where we aspire, right, to be weaving mm-hmm. and interconnected and collaborative. Um, and yet, of course, like we exist in a culture um, that buys into scarcity, yeah. right? Um, where there's, where that breeds competition. Yeah. Um, and that also um, reinforces individualism, like that our organization or our block or build or be mm. needs to be, is the only yeah. solution for the, pro- right? Like, it's right. like, oh no, like we have all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have to do everything, right? It's like, it really disrupts that mentality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's comforting, like and not a bad <laughs> comfort, but I'm like, I'm comforted to know that like, I, like there, there are other people in the ecosystem, right? There's a lot of us doing different kinds of work, right? Um, that all of it is necessary in different ways, right? Absolutely, yeah. And there, and there are cultures. I think, especially indigenous cultures, and we saw this at Standing Rock, and I really see it here in the um, Sugorite Land Trust and Ohlone groups that are reviving, um, protecting sacred sites, and reviving language and culture. It's like for some folks, like the being never left, like the the ceremony at the center of protection and not not protesting, but protecting was like such a huge contribution, I think, of the of the Standing Rock communication. Right. Like and you can feel how the being connects with protecting in some ways a bit more than protesting. And is that about interdependence, like just a deep understanding of like not separateness, right? That like we are earth, we are the land, this is us. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't really speak for yeah. for traditions that I don't come from. 
Um, but again, like with Thich Nhat Hanh, like he, he coined the term interbeing. Um, and in the Buddhist tradition, right, there's this like really incredibly radical and sometimes honestly t- terrifying <laughs> um, level on which, yeah, like we are not separate from each other, from the trees that are providing us air to breathe, from the oceans and the air and space and everything that has ever been right. and ever will be. And it's it can easily be diluted into like all lives matter in that totally. way of like <laughs> horrible um, denial of the of the truths of the delusions of hierarchy and supremacy that are very violent. But what if we could recuperate and kind of reclaim more of us, I'm saying, because some people already are doing it, but like what if more of us could um, bring, yeah, those that sense of sacred interconnection and the courage that comes from that and the love that comes from that to our movements or to ourselves who are in movement. Well, and I hear you again naming the nuance because what you just, you know, all lives matter reminds me of like, the we are one like we love we love to say we are one in like contemplative yoga wellness practice and and it's not to deny Mm. like of course we are Mm. and like capital a and d right and it's also true that we're all having a very different experience of being alive on the planet given how things are organized given systems of oppression given who gets rewarded given white supremacy patriarchy capitalism colonization i mean the list goes on yeah and to me, that goes back to spiritual practice. Like, how do we actually hold the both and? Because, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. of course, right, there's right. truth and interbeing and oneness. and But that's not the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Buddha's first noble truth was there is suffering. Right? And that means, like, for all of us. So I sometimes reflect on how suffering is universal but oppression is patterned totally. and specific right and we shouldn't conflate them yep and it's okay for me to recognize that someone who might be in a more privileged position might also be suffering intensely yeah extremely partly because of a feeling of separation yeah you know but that doesn't mean that systems are organized against them exactly and exactly. that's oppression right that's oppression. Okay, so let's talk about block since you and I started there. Let's do it. Um, and um, and I just want to ask about civil disobedience because this is another thing you and I have in common <laughs> um, is a willingness to put our bodies on the line. And I'm, I'm just, I wish you could talk to um, the relationship between, you know, civil disobedience and nonviolent action mm-hmm. and Buddhism because it actually has a long history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. It feels um, maybe fruitful to even start by acknowledging that uh, at the time of the Buddha, he was opposing a caste system structure that said only certain people can achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. Sounds familiar. Right? And... um, And so by teaching that all beings in this very lifetime, and particularly with an auspicious, you know, the the ability to be born a human um, and to both have the capacity to um, hear and understand the Dharma and enough discomfort in life to act on it, (laughs) uh, that, yeah, that all of us can be, can, can find awakening. And so this like earned him enemies, you know what I mean? It was not uncontroversial. Risky. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so I think that's one example of a nonviolent uh, change to the dominant system. And from there, um, yeah, as I mentioned, Thich Nhat Hanh yeah. is like a is an incredible, just. I don't know, lineage holder vessel. Like I, I was reading uh, in uh, Being Peace, he, ha- he talks about, he describes seven stages of reconciliation. So like in our context, when a lot of us are working on restorative justice or trying to abolish the prison industrial complex yeah. and 
trying to find ways of of addressing harm and repairing harm that are not punitive, that are not based on this carceral capitalism. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh is like, here are seven stages <laughs> for reconciliation, and they're amazing. <laughs> they're so amazing. Like they already exist. Right, they've existed for like a really long ass time. And, and we s- keep recreating, like we're trying to make things up when actually yeah, we and- can look to history and yeah, to our teachers. And I mean, to- totally acknowledging that for some of us, like we've had a, a, a our lineages have been severed mm-hmm. in really traumatic ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like as folks captured from Africa, enslaved, yes. forced into assimilation through boarding schools, you know, forced to flee, you know, our homelands, like many reasons that we might <laughs> forget or, you know, yeah. not, or not know. have access, right, yeah. to, to traditions. Um, so yeah, really wanting to acknowledge and, and hold the, the difficulty of that. And like, right, like what I was so struck by by these seven stages of reconciliation is that part of them are premised on, oh, we have a community that lives together day to day and reminds each other to practice mindfulness and humility. Like that's baseline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not it's like, assumed. yeah. And it's, and from there, you know, we're, we're doing things every day to try to maintain like the harmony and wellness of our community. And it, whereas like a lot of Western medicine, like I don't want to completely disparage Western medicine, but it feels like it's very interventionist. It's like Mm -hmm. once there's a problem, then we're going to find the solution for the problem and apply it. Or the solution to the symptom. Yes. 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 Right. Right. And, um, and yeah, like what, how deep does this really go? Like how deep does restorative justice go? How does it ask, ask us to live and show up like every single day, right? And so it's like one of those kind of cool tunnels where the block of like blocking prison industrial complex actually is like this huge tunnel to being. Like how, how are we practicing? That they intersect and they overlap. Yeah, yeah. And how are we building, right, like, community protocols like new ways of being together which is hard like yeah. it's so so hard in our like atomized society like in the bay area housing is so expensive and it really atrophies like our community connections in a lot of ways um yeah but but we're still trying you know and i think we're um we're finding out that like block is, you know, one of the doorways to all these other dimensions, right, of building and being. Well, and I would imagine block, build, and be our doorways to one another. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, which makes it more complicated and more beautiful, mm-hmm. the poem. The poem, you know, blossoms. <laughs> um, so I want to ask about build. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the way that I want to ask about it as someone who comes from block mm-hmm. um, is whether social location has anything to do with what shape we take inside of this framework. Because mm-hmm. I think about myself, right? I'm a white, cisgender, straight, able-bodied, educated. I mean, like you mm-hmm. name it, I have great proximity to power and privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm drawn particularly to block be- because I'm because I'm proximal to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think about while I have, I have energy around build mm-hmm. in specific ways, um, I, I actually don't think I should lead build mm-hmm. or imagine build even, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think I'm limited based on my location, my mm-hmm. social location and how I've been conditioned and indoctrinated and so on and so forth. And so I'm just mm-hmm. curious, like how, how does social location intersect? So like I look to people of color, yeah. um, indigenous folks, the most marginalized people who have been left out and right. excluded systemically to actually be imagining the more beautiful, inclusive future mm-hmm. that we all get to be a part of. Um, and that to me feels more hopeful and more and, ha- and more um, bountiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just curious, like, does does that have a place in this work? Um, mm-hmm. Is that a part of like discernment, right? right. And wisdom? Yeah, I, a few things come up for me. So one is um, Ashley Woodard Henderson, who's the one of the incredible directors of the Highlander mm-hmm. Institute in Tennessee um, and like leads like black feminist uh, 
liberation work. Uh, she, she has talked about how in certain circumstances, like if white folks don't recruit other white folks into mm-hmm. where like we all want to head, they're going to get recruited by the mm-hmm. white supremacist mm-hmm. fundamentalists. And they right? are already. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I think um, we have been building institutions, structures, education for white anti-racism in the U.S. to try to reckon with some of the harm of, of the history of this place. And that that's what's allowed like us to have this conversation using yeah. these terms, right? And I and I wonder, um, yeah, like whether there's some amount of fear, fear of overstepping that is like preventing mm. more like white folks from leading other white folks into like a more beautiful interconnected world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And again, like that's understandable. It's not like really a judgment or criticism, but like, I'm just Ashley's uh, voices in my mind a little bit. Um, well, and that's good contemplation because, you know, I, I believe that shame too is a construct of white supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. It keeps us quiet. Mm-hmm. It keeps us inactive. Mm-hmm. It keeps us feeling separate. Mm-hmm. Um, it keeps us um, fearing the risk of connection and mistake right. making and right. saying the wrong thing, right? Which mm-hmm. I think plays into that Christian, um, you know, indoctrination mm-hmm. of like what is good and what is bad and what is binary. So I think there is something to that. That And it and the way I hear you also framing it is that um, white folks all have a responsibility mm-hmm. too, right? Mm-hmm. To like go get your people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that we can be ready, right? To like follow. Right, right. The vision, right? right. Of what's right. next. But I love how you're, I love how you were putting it too, because I think we need to, we need to understand that building doesn't always have to look one way. Building doesn't have to look like, corporate, like monocrop, like this is the one big thing. I'm going to like poach everyone (laughs) and like annex everything Um, that, yeah, like there can be like incredible, like as as is happening a lot of different places, like white or even like Asian allies to like Black Lives Matter, these sort of like wings of movement work that are producing like really, really beautiful stuff. And but but like you said, you know, the leadership and the restoring of balance of like who being led by people who are directly impacted by things definitely needs to happen. And um, yeah, I think that like our, our entire idea of building maybe has been like really warped by uh, like industrialism and colonizer mentality. And like, what does it mean to think of ourselves as like, building in a much more organic kind of like ecological way, like Mm -hmm. building these, like the bees are pollinating the thing and the thing is doing the thing, you know, like all these like incredible. Back to the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Like I heard uh, Charles Eisenstein was describing a story of like bears will scratch bark on trees and then a certain fungus will grow in that bark and then bees will come and visit the fungus. And then the fungus provides them with, uh, like immunity against certain like diseases that are killing the bees right now. Yeah. And it's just like, thank God for the bears. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the trees and the part, you know, yeah, it's like totally. all, all these different pieces Everyone and parts. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's interbeing again. Right. Right. And we don't have to elevate like the bee or the bark or the bear. Right. Like it doesn't, <laughs> that's not the point at all. That's and, right. but, but because we're trying to heal from uh, false hierarchies, like illusions of hierarchy and worth, that's a lot of what many of us are grappling with, which yeah. is understandable. And it feels corrective, but it also feels, for me, it feels um, like like more possible. Like there actually is more creativity mm-hmm. and resilience mm-hmm. um, and spaciousness and expansion mm-hmm. um, when ideas and innovations and solutions are coming from people who have been navigating that line mm-hmm. for so long. Mm-hmm. Like I actually, I'm actually like, thank God. Yeah. Um, and so it's, to me, it's like, well, who's been building all along? Right. Who built this exactly. mess? Who exactly. fucking built the mess that we're in? Right. Don't right. let them build. Right. <laughs> and like, there's so much more that we don't know. Yeah. Because we've been stuck inside this house for so long. Yeah. And who can build the thing that's beyond our wildest imagination? 
Right. And it, yeah, it is happening. It is happening. It's totally happening. I mean, I'm thinking about Adrian again and right. defying, right, um, institutions and right. um, and just counterculture. Yes. Like we are seeing that mm-hmm. emerge everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And here, here in the Bay Area, um, the Segorite Land Trust was also That's right. like really this building structure that was born out of these block fights to defend sacred land, sacred places to Ohlone people. And when the blocking was being like overwhelmed by developers, this, this new form emerged of a land trust. And now that they have the form of a land trust, it's like all of us get to get information. And those, those of us working on like housing and anti-gentrification, like literally this recent um, building developer, we like pressured them into meeting with the Segorite land trust leaders and like paying a tax to the land trust. And they've developed the, what they call the Shumi land tax. Um, but but now that there is that kind of clear process in the language of like we still are operating with this myth that land can be owned or whatever. Right. But using the tools available to us, it's like a real kind of game changer. And they are the land that they are holding and stewarding is partly used to revive ceremony and ritual and uh, protocol of how to greet among tribes in this part of of colonized california and Mm. it's just so it's like gives me chills to think about it's like this really incredible like women indigenous women led it's the first indigenous women led land trust in the u.s and uh yeah they're just making really incredible amazing things happen with this building well the other thing i just heard you say that um that makes this model, I think, so resilient is that like w- when block isn't working, because mm. mm. <laughs> I do think also we have a tendency to do that, right? To mm. like block, block more, block harder, yeah. keep blocking, don't stop, <laughs> you know, and it's like not working, yeah. right? So like when when something's not working, whether it's be block or build, right? right? I'm sure this goes for all of them. Um, there's an opportunity to shape shift mm. or, ca- or to call someone else in or to do something different. And that just unlocks all these other yeah like beautiful shapes mm. and opportunities and pathways and tunnels to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I want to ask about B and I'm not saving it for last. <laughs> it's not like B is last when this is not sequential. You've already told us this, um, but this does feel like a, a big one um, in this particular moment, especially since as you named, it's been often left out mm. of activism. And, um, and the thing I think I want to ask um around B is is having to do with despair mm. and how you know my my tendency is to to be ferocious when I feel fear and mm. when I feel despair like mm. I, that's the default mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that's my stance mm-hmm. right which is like great and also like unhealthy at times when it's not mm. when I'm not in being right when I'm mm. not conscious of what's happening and um and I think people are really afraid. Yeah. And I think when you really look, like when you have real clear seeing at the degradation of our planet, um, how entrenched systems of oppression are, um, how um, indoctrinated, you know, we are in in the ideologies of s- supremacy and domination mm-hmm. and profit over people. I think it's hard to like, exist inside of that mm. and find hope and keep going and mm. so like what is what is the being practice yeah. around despair like how do we feel into that because it does feel necessary to touch mm. down mm. into it um but sometimes i get i get nervous i'm gonna get lost in it mm. mm-hmm. yeah <sighs> yeah these twin streams of our political and spiritual lineages. You know, for me, like the political lineage says, never give up, like keep fighting. And the spiritual lineage literally says, release what you think you need. Wow. <laughs> and and be with the grieving and the suffering that comes up. Don't try to push it away. Don't try to numb it. Don't try to like 
create a workaround. Because um, mm. it also exists. It's also part of the larger belonging. And this is like the richness of the paradox for me, right? It's like, uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh has survived war, seen so many friends die. Um, and now in his old age, he says, I have never been born and I will never die. You know, that level of understanding of the larger self beyond the small self. And again, like, you know how stuff hits you just differently at different times of life. And there would have been a part of my life when I would have really hated that kind of statement and just found it irrelevant at best to what's going on politically when so much is at stake and there's so much suffering. Um, but I think teachers like him are really masterful at helping us not be overwhelmed by the grief, like, like not try to fix it, but you know, which is like you're saying a form of like fear reactivity. Um, like avoidant, yeah, right? Attack, yeah, yeah manage. Yeah. yeah, but what if I really, and Joanna Macy's work also really incorporates, starts with grieving. You know, you have to move, acknowledge grief and loss. And from there we can move towards hopefulness and change. It's funny when I think about sacred rage, I when I really look at it, I think it's grief. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like James Baldwin said, I think a reason people cling so stubbornly to their hates is because they sense that when once hate is gone, they'll have to deal with pain. And right. I think he was talking about like white hatred, like white supremacist hatred. But I really um yeah, the the like vociferous like warrior, you know, perm permanent warrior <laughs> like stance of someone like me in movement um, that wants to defeat uh, people who are threatening the earth and species. Like I have to look at my own sacred rage. Um, one of our at Buddhist Peace Fellowship our most famous online, or sorry, most popular online course <laughs> is- um, It can be famous too, sure, by the way. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks to, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks to Kate Johnson and Don Haney and yes. other folks who put it together is called You Mad Wisdom for Rageful Times. Yes. And it's like interviews with seven different Dharma teachers uh, about, yeah, how to, how to work with our anger. And yeah, I mean, there, there is a tension between like, glossing over anger, you know, or, or vilifying anger from a spiritual perspective. Um, and then glorifying anger from a political perspective and seeing, seeing that, I think of anger kind of as like a, you know, Monsanto, like grow the crop really big, really fast, you know, like our outrage and our anger can really mobilize people like yeah. big and fast because of the fear. But is that what we really want long-term? Like yeah, what is it doing it has to a the role. soil? Yeah. 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 What is it doing to the soil? Yeah. So being, I think also like another good example of a mashup to me or a couple that we kind of have, have talked about in other conversations. One is like, I grew you know, I was taught to chant no justice, no peace. <laughs> and, um, and Dharma, like really Buddhist practice and training really turns that on its head. And it's just like, no, like what, what is the peace that can never be taken away, no matter what the awful circumstances externally. Um, and it's scary, you know, like I don't claim to have any kind of mastery over this, but what I have experienced or witnessed is that um, the the openness to listening and like stillness that comes with peace and again like listening to the quieter instruments 
can make us like more creative in in our ability to respond to harm and like structural harm and structural violence. Uh, and so peace, yeah, we want to be careful not to have that mean the negative piece of like conformity and, and going with the status quo. Totally. Exactly. And, uh, but, but right, like what is, but, but also it's like on a really petty level, again, like does peace mean boring? Like, am I going to become boring <laughs> if I become a peaceful person? This real questions that. Well, and I feel like a lot of what you're naming is just how words have been also co-opted by culture, right? Like mm. they, right. They're like not, they're political. Words are political. And I love the inquiry around what do we mean by peace? What do we mean by anger? Um, what do we mean by justice? Right. Yeah. That feels like a worthy inquiry mm-hmm. so that we can say what we mean yeah. and like and embody the nuance of it. And because I do think you're right, like it's easy to default to like these mantras, mm-hmm. these binary mantras, these fixed, you know, absolute mantras and not allow for the expansion the complexity, the possibility that's in between. Yeah. And I think it's happening. Like we're I'm so grateful to all the movement groups that are insisting on like the the indispensability of cultural work and how like singing, singing can yes. be such a more sustaining way to like take up space than chanting over and over, no justice, totally. no peace. <laughs> we did a blockade, a meditation blockade uh, in front of a hotel that was uh, hosting a weapons expo for police training. So we were trying to get the hotel to kick, kick out the weapons training. And, um, and we were, we were planning the action and we were wondering whether to, uh, allow like the folks in the crowd to chant while people were blockading the entrance. And we said, no, it feels like, you know, that's always kind of, uh, demoralizing at some point is <laughs> your energy lags and and you can't you just can't keep shouting at the non-responsive building um, but very last minute some monastics showed up with drums and they're like can we chant <laughs> we're like oh that type of chanting yes like they sustained you know yeah. hours of this incredibly beautiful drumming and chanting and it, again, like that has never left many communities, you know, particularly like in the South, African-American communities, like indigenous communities, like people are, are doing, and even like Jewish communities. I think I've I've seen Jewish community do cop watch while singing during Shabbat. (laughs) Like it's amazing. It's incredible. Um, and, And yeah, I think we're finding our way back to, to some of that reclaiming of art. Yeah, and work. and ceremony and and, yep. and ritual, yeah. ritual and and again like the politics of irrepressibility rather than the politics of pressure. Like I have to force you yeah. through my four four <laughs> chanting. <laughs> well, I just I want to so appreciate you and Buddhist Peace Fellowship and the um, the permission you've given us to be many things at once, mm-hmm. and also like the skill the skills that you help us cultivate around discernment and nuance and, and holding the spiritual complexity of who we are in this moment. Mm. Um, and the push, mm. like, right. The push to, I mean, I feel like there's a push in your work to like, and I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but to be better, like we mm. can do better. Mm. Like we can, um, we can, you know, we can get information, mm. right. And, and we can play our roles, right? We can understand our role in the revolution in a much more nuanced and interbeing way. Mm-hmm. Um, and just also the way in which you allow us to touch into our grief, um, but also let it coexist with hope. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I just love your work so much. And I, I get life from it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank and I'm excited you. that other people are going to get to experience uh, you and experience this work and learn more and be curious and dig mm-hmm. in and... Because we've got a long road ahead. Mm. <laughs> so let it be joyful. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much. I mean, what a blessing and a gift in this lifetime to like have conversation with someone. Like you get it. You absolutely get, you know, all of the tensions and contradictions and beauty and possibility because you also have been pushing and, and opening yourself to transformation and change. And I really appreciate and admire it thank and you. admire your the way that you 
conduct these conversations and, and the podcast. I hope people might find something useful from this and um, yeah, we'll keep I'm changing. I'm sure they will. We'll keep changing. Yeah, because I, I like, you know, I I don't know that I get it, but I'm getting it mm-hmm. and it's like ongoing, right? And I just, mm-hmm. and one of the things I love about this podcast is that we try to have conversations that push us. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean push in like a block way. I mean, just push in like a be- in a build way and in a B mm-hmm. way um, to, um, to do things differently. So thank you for being a part of it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and and listeners, like, genuine invitation to, um, if I've said something that has caused harm, I ask for your forgiveness. Mm. And if I've said something that you'd like to push back on, I really welcome that. So feel free to reach out to me. And, like, I am honored to be in conversation with this with this network, with this community. So thank you. Thank you for modeling that. And it's making me think that we should do that in every podcast, <laughs> right? Because we just don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's humans in that, so thank you. Mm-hmm. It's been a joy. Thank you, Carrie. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This episode's call to action is to explore the Build Block B framework and find our unique place in the movement to transform ourselves and one another towards liberation. Check out Buddhist Peace Fellowship's course, What's My Role in the Revolution at bfp.org role. Big thanks to Katie Lung for joining us today. You can follow her and Buddhist Peace Fellowship on Twitter at Buddhist Peace. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and share the love by telling your friends to check us out. 